Well, okay, it's about that time. I uh, obviously am not Bill Combs. <laughs> Wouldn't aspire to fill his shoes. Um, but uh, he's, I understand, doing a little better, but uh, still struggling quite a bit with some gastrointestinal issues that he struggled with for years, but uh, they're particularly intense. So you landed him in the hospital. Um, but uh, so keep him in your prayers, and uh, they're doing more tests as the weeks as the weeks unfold here. I guess he's a little bit too sick to have some of his tests right now. So, so keep him in prayer. And so I was got the call to uh, uh, do something. And uh, if I could relate it to 1 Corinthians, good. If not, that's fine. And so I asked where he was. He said chapter 7. And so I have this little pamphlet I got published here about, oh, just a few months ago on premarital sex. And and one of the principal passages that I appeal to in making this case is 1 Corinthians 7, so which is where you're at right now in the, uh, in the study. Uh, so I'm not continuing his study, and it's not the principal purpose of this passage, and as, you're well, as you well know, but it's an implication. And so that's what we're going to talk about is one of the implications of the text uh, that you're working through right now, and that is... Uh, so an, a biblical argument against premarital sex. Let's start with prayer, and then we'll uh, jump into this. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us, for your goodness. Thank you for saving us from, from a lifestyle that was, uh, was ungodly. And Lord, I ask as we, as we pursue godliness and help others in their pursuit of godliness, uh, uh, advise them and uh, come alongside them, uh, we, act, we ask that you would give us a, 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 a wisdom that comes only from knowing uh, the Christian worldview contained in the Christian scriptures. And Lord, we ask as we, as we talk about this somewhat delicate topic tonight, we ask that we would uh, be uh, uh, attentive and give uh, good attention to your word and what it has to say on the topic at hand. In your name we pray, amen. <clears throat> okay, so you all have a handout, right, I believe. Um, but... Uh, a few years ago, I was in the break room at the seminary, and uh, I teach at the seminary, incidentally, if you don't know. And this is my wife over here, Heather, so she's the, she's the silent person over there in the corner of the room. Um, <laughs> uh, I, was in, I, was in the, I was in the break room with a number of guys from the seminary, students, and there was a fellow there. He was, he was about to be married that, that summer, so it was a, his marriage was just a couple of months away, and Somehow the conversation got around to premarital sex. I'm not sure how it happened, but it, it did. And uh, he made this startling admission to me. He said, I'm, he said I'm, I'm committed to pursuing sexual purity, but I can't make a case from the Bible that premarital sex is wrong. So I, I just never... I've seen it successfully done. I, I, I can't make the case for it. He said, don't, don't, get, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm committed. I'm, I'm not engaged in any sort of sinful activity here, but I've just never seen the case made. And I, I thought, wow. I mean, this is a guy who he'd, he'd gone through three years of seminary, four years of Bible college, uh, grew up in a Christian home, was in church ever since he was able to recognize where he was, you know, and, and somehow he, he couldn't make the case that it was wrong. So I, I, I you know, I, I trotted out some sort of well-worn arguments, Genesis 2, that this is God's design for mankind, and, you know, this, you know, uh, Doug McLaughlin, one of my teachers back, way back in the day, uh, said, you know, you, you, you leave, you cleave, and then you weave. You don't weave until after you leave and cleave, right? So and it, it, it made, made good sense to me. You leave your parents, you cleave to your wife, and, and then you, and, you, and, and you establish, a rela- establish a family. And it's, it's there that you become one flesh, okay? And it makes good sense. Um, uh, there's there's a, a, a cluster of passages, particularly in the New Testament, that talk about, this word, this word fornication comes up. It's a Greek word, pornea, from which you get pornography, right? And, uh, and, but, it, but it's, a rather, it's a rather elastic word. It, it, 
it doesn't narrowly have to do with premarital sex. It has to do with all kinds of sexual sin. So, so it's a very broad term. It's not a specific term. And so, so at, at, you know, if, you're, if you're looking for a specific you know, prohibition of this particular sin as carefully defined in Scripture, it's, it, it's actually hard to find. And he, and he was pointing this out. And so I, you know, I, I decided, well, I'm going to do a little search on this. So I, I, I go and, you know, library searches, and I'm not finding much. And so then I, 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 I go to the, you know, the blogs, the websites, and, and I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm finding some people making arguments against the idea of premarital sex, but they aren't really biblical arguments per se. They're, they're fairly general. You know, this is God's design for marriage. Or, or, or the specific idea of pornea being wrong, but again, that doesn't, it's, not, it's not specific enough to, to give us the, uh, the fodder that we need to, to make a strong case. Then there, that, but for the most part, even Christians are making a, just a whole host of what I'll call utilitarian arguments. Okay? There's, there's just good reasons practically why you shouldn't engage in this. And we, we, could, we could multiply those out, right? You know, you know there's, uh, particularly for someone who's going into the ministry, there's broad cultural disapproval. The culture thinks it's wrong. I mean, there's a, there's a broad disapproval. There's, there's this psychological unpreparedness that uh, people have when they, when, they, when they get the cart before the horse here. They're just not prepared uh, for the, they're not mature enough uh, for, the, uh, for, the, for the act. Uh, we, we can look at statistics and find out that people who engage in premarital sex are more likely to engage in, all, in other forms of sexual infidelity their whole lives. And so that's, I mean, that's an argument there. Uh, the problem of surprise pregnancies, of course, is a practical issue there. And, 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 and then particularly, since there is no marriage bond, uh, the, the guy can up and walk away. And so you end up with, uh, particularly with, with women, young mothers whose, whose lives are effectively ruined by the fact that they have a, have a baby and uh, can't work, they have to move in with mom or, or whatever the case may be. And so there's a lot of practical reasons. And, uh, and you know, this, this individual that I was talking to admitted that there's a, there's a convincing cumulative case argument against premarital sex but he really couldn't come up with a, an exegetical, a biblical case against premarital sex. And so I, uh, I, I decided, well, I'm going to see if, if there's more to be had here. And uh, so, we, uh, so I, I actually wrote this article, put it into our journal, and then recently it was, it was, it was published. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an Amazon publication thing, but uh, it's, it's being sold by the seminary. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm nor- normally rather an impractical kind of a guy, but I, I, I'm, I'm into sort of a practical discussion here, and you know perhaps one that you find a little bit squeamish. And I, I, I see some, I see a few older faces here, and I recognize that this is the kind of thing that you know, we don't talk about. Well, we're going to at least tonight. At least I will. You, you, you can just sit there and listen. <laughs> but uh, we got it. We'll, we'll talk about it here. <laughs> Now, the question I want to start off with here is a question of method. How do we go about determining what is right and wrong from the Bible? And, and you, know, you, you might say, well, that's easy. If the Bible says it's right, then it's right. If the Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. But the fact of the matter is, a lot of the things that we have to struggle with don't have chapter and verse attached to them, right? Okay. Um, is it wrong to smoke marijuana? Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not finding chapter, certainly specific chapter and verse on that. I mean, it's just not there. And, you know, and even if, you're, if we're talking in terms of principles, it's, it's, the argument's not a particularly robust and obvious one, right? And yet, we make the case, right? At least I do, that it's wrong. It's a, it's a, it's a controlling substance. It, 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 it actually causes you to lose, to some, some degree, control over your own self, which makes it some sort of a, if I, if I, if I, if I can, it's, a, it's like, like alcohol, a little bit different from alcohol, 
it's, it's an inebriant, it's one that causes you to lack control, and so we make the argument there that it's, that it's wrong, and, I don't, and for a while there, we, it was easy, we'd say it was illegal, but now it isn't anymore, so, so that argument went away from, went, went away from us. If that, if that was the only thing you were leaning on, you got, you're in trouble right now, uh, because uh, if, that, if that's the only argument you have, but that's, that's often the case what we have, and so I want to start here by talking about two approaches to ethics. Now, maybe a little bit technical here, but hopefully it just makes some sense here. Um, there's two approaches. One, you can see there, is what I call utilitarian or sometimes called teleological or consequentialist ethics. So we are looking at the consequences of an action and you're determining that it's right or wrong based on the consequences or the end or the utility. What, 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 what are the practical problems it causes? And because of those practical problems, we actually we can, we will say it is wrong. Okay? Now, often these are not universal principles. Sometimes uh, we, we find that there is even room for evolution of some of these principles here. And you say, well, that's not what we should be doing here. But the fact is the Christian ethical approach does depend uh, on consequentialist elements sometimes. In fact, you know, let, let's, let's look at a few of them here. They're all in first, a few of them here in 1 Corinthians, since that's what we're, we're, you're in in this class here. But uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It comes on a section, uh, at, the, at the end of a section, that talks about whether we should eat meat or not, right? Now, is there a chapter and verse on whether eating meat is right or wrong? Actually, there are a couple, uh, but they all say that it's right. You know, there's none that actually say it's wrong. But Paul actually makes the argument here that if, in fact, eating meat is going to be a stumbling block to the gospel, or if it's going to cause my brother to sin, then I won't eat meat again for the rest of my life. Now, the fact is, if he wanted to go chapter and verse, he could say, yeah, Genesis 9, you can eat meat. It says right there, right after the flood. You can eat meat now. And even if there was any question, you've got New Testament passages. You know, Peter, when he goes to, to Cornelius, he has this dream in the middle of the night, and there are these animals, unclean animals, that are walking up and down on the sheet, and what does God say? Arise, Peter, kill and eat. He said, no, ne never. These, these are unclean animals. And what's the answer? If I say it's clean, it's clean, eat it. And he's preparing him to go to visit Cornelius, where he might actually be, fit, might actually be served unclean meat. And God says to him, it's okay. And for the sake of the gospel, you might not feel comfortable with that, but do it. Okay, so, so this, is, this is a case where we're not looking at chapter and verse to say whether it's right or wrong. We're actually looking at the consequences of the action to determine whether it's right or wrong. The, the, the consequence of eating this meat will either promote the gospel or inhibit the gospel, and based on that consequence, I'm going to choose either to eat or not to eat. Okay? Now, sometimes it's very difficult for us to, to handle because we, we, like to, we, like to, we like to have, you know, black and white. But here, if the question is, is it right to eat meat? And what's Paul's answer? Maybe, sometimes, <laughs> depends. <laughs> and and so, so we do actually have in the scriptures uh, principles like this. 1 Corinthians 9, 22 and 23, a similar context here, uh, where, I, you know, I will do all to the, to the Jews, I become as a Jew to win the Jews, to, as, to the Gentiles, I become as a Gentile to win the Gentiles. Okay? Things are right and wrong based on the success of the gospel, whether it causes my brother to sin. 1 Corinthians 8.13 is another passage which talks about uh, the appropriateness of doing certain activities being adjudicated by the result of this. So consequences can play a real role in establishing Christian morality. And the reason I say that is because sometimes when we have a question, an ethical question, we don't have chapter and verse, that doesn't mean that the Bible is silent or that God doesn't care. Okay? So there, there, there are ways to establish ethics 
other than, you know, strict chapter verse proof texts. We want to engage the uh, questions about the whole Christian worldview in the establishment of what is right and wrong. And so this is where I think it is very important for us to say, yeah, Genesis 2 is actually a good argument here. This is God's design for the human race. He wants people to be in these family units. That's the only way we can have a successful culture. Okay? If you're having kids randomly and they're just sort of introducing them, throwing them out into the world, apart from these family units, that's going to be a problem. In fact, much of the, as you look through the Old Testament, an interesting study sometime, if you want to look at the, uh, the, uh, the, pass, the, 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 the laws in the Old Testament, you know, the Mosaic law, that are capital crimes, pretty easy. There's obviously, you know, you can't kill people or else you can be put to death. Um, you, can't, you can't curse God, you know, things like that. So blasphemy and murder. But the big section in the middle, the largest section, is crimes against the family, okay? So adultery, homosexuality, bestiality. These, this is the big cluster of capital crimes in the Old Testament that, 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 that you find that sort of shock you, surprise you, because God is really concerned about the stability of the family unit. So I think we do have a good argument in Genesis 2 against premarital sex. It's not as clean and clear as we'd like it to be, but we do have an argument there. So uh, the, also, I think we want to make sure that we recognize that the doctrine of biblical sufficiency means that God's word always speaks to every issue, even though it doesn't always speak directly to every issue. God never leaves us without guidance in ethical decision-making. Sometimes it's a little bit muddy at times. At the same time, he never leaves us without guidance, and he never gives us just sort of moral autonomy. Just do whatever you want. There's always a right and wrong. There's always something that he is pleased with and displeased with. Okay? And since the Bible appeals to our utilitarian kinds of arguments um, in, in, its, in its own in the own worldview, we should recognize that even the you know. You ever you have, some of you have had kids, right? And uh, you, you have rules. You know, you got to go to bed at 10 o'clock. Let's put that one out there. And, uh, you know, the kid eventually says, well, why? Right? You know. And part of the answer is because I said so. And that's, that's a legitimate aspect to the answer, right? Because I said so and I'm the authority. But usually, the, 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 strongest argue, the strongest rules that you have, the ones that your kids are most willing to acquiesce to, are the ones that they can see the reason for. Okay? And by understanding this idea of consequence and utility, we recognize that all of the rules in the Bible have reasons. Sometimes we don't actually get the rule, we just get the reasons. Sometimes we get the rule. The strongest ones are the ones that you get the rule and the reason, okay? Uh, so, 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 so recognize uh, that this idea of utility and consequence does play a part in ethical decision-making. I, I know, again, this is, this, is, this is hard for us sometimes because we like to have, you know, hard, black, white, chapter, verse. Uh, but we, and the, and the reason we sometimes debate issues is because there isn't consensus. You know, is it, is it right to drink? Is it right to dance? Is it right to use controlled substances? There's probably disagreement in this very room, right? And, and the reason is because we're trying to bring to bear biblical principles and we're pulling from different places and sometimes we don't always come up with the same answers. But there's answers there and, 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 and the point is we don't just give up and, and say God doesn't care, okay? I, I, I've always disliked this whole phrase, things indifferent. Uh, you'll, you'll get to uh, these, these issues in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 uh, next semester here. But God is not indifferent about anything. Now, there are certain things where there's an inexactness, but at the, it's not as though God doesn't care. Okay? 
So we're looking here. I think we find here that the gold standard, if we can have one, is a direct statement of Scripture. I mean, that's, that's what we're all looking for. That, that, that ends all debate. That ends all discussion. And so the question here is, um, is that, and that's the second type here. It's not, you might see deontology uh, or, or authority-based ethics. Okay? And the, 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 when, when God speaks, he speaks authoritatively, and so it's, so it's easy for us. But, but oftentimes, we don't have uh, we don't have those things, and so we do have to, to uh, cast about uh, for some utilitarian and, and consequentialist uh, elements in our ethical decision-making. But in this case, I think we actually do have a case to be made from the Scriptures itself that unequivocally tells us that premarital sex is wrong. Okay? I want to start here with some elements from the Mosaic Law. Sometimes I think uh, we, because we, you know, we, we hear negative things about the law, right? You know, the law doesn't save us, and so the law has been set aside, and you know, sometimes we get this idea in our heads that the law is bad, it's evil, it's wicked, you know, let, let's, let's burn it. Um, but we shouldn't be thinking in those terms. We, we, we recognize uh, that there are, that the law as a unit for the Israelite people is no longer in effect in its totality, but all of the laws, all of the rules that were contained in the Mosaic Law are ethically good and right. They're righteous, as, as Paul says, they're good and righteous and true. Okay? They're based on the character of God. And so much can be learned from the Old Testament as to what God expects. Okay? Now, there are certain rules in the Old Testament that are obviously isolated to a specific time and people, you know, these ideas of circumcision we recognize as something uniquely for Israel. The requirement, Sabbath, the same way. Fences on roofs is, is culturally bound. We, you know, uh, most of you don't have fences around your roofs because nobody lives on your roofs. Uh, if you lived on a roof, it would be a good idea to have a fence around your roof. But since we don't anymore, we, that rule doesn't apply to us. And so. So we, re we recognize that not everything in the Mosaic Law applies, but we recognize that it is a, a window into the nature and character of God. And so when we see these statements in the Old Testament, we get a sense of what's right and wrong in, in God. Right and wrong doesn't evolve uh, in God. So let's start here with this passage, Exodus 22, 16 and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay to the father the bride price and she shall become his wife. But if her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the price for virgins. Now we start off with, the, uh, with a question as to what is the nature of this. Um, one of the contextual issues here is that it comes at the tail end of a section on economic issues and it introduces sexual issues. And so the question is, is this an economic issue or is this a sexual ethic issue? And it's sort of, it's, 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 it's right in between, okay? And some, some observe that because of the, you know, this, this element here of, you know, paying the father a price because she's spoiled goods, this is just an economic issue, it's just a matter of property rights, so it's economic only, it doesn't really have to do with sexual ethics, and so now that we live in a society in which, you know, fathers don't own their daughters and sell them to husbands, this really doesn't have any applicability to us. Uh, but the, the fact is, uh, it's the, you're right, it, it is both because it's not only an economic thing, but also part of the punishment is not only that you have to pay the price, but also you have to marry her now. Now that might be okay, and it might be kind of a bad news, but that's, that was the requirement that is there. Okay, So it carries with it the obligation to marry, not just material restitution. Okay, and so the implication here is the seducer has not only deprived the father of his right to compensation, 
Now, he, he, he ruined this commodity, and so the father was no longer going to be able to sell her, okay? And so he, he ruined his, so, so the seducer ruined the commodity, and so it was an economic hardship for dad. But he had also stolen the girl's prospect for security and stability. He had taken away her virginity without paying for it, okay? And unless the father deliberately intervenes, we find, the perpetrator has to marry the girl as the most obvious way of paying for what he has, for what he has stolen from dad and from the girl. And so these are not a question of patriarchal economics, but personal and sexual ethics. Okay, so we have some details here that I think help us uh, establish what's going on here. A number of if-then statements here. First, we find if the perpetrator seduces a virgin. I think that's very important for us here. Uh, some have suggested here that what we're dealing with is not premarital sex, but actually rape or prostitution. But this word seduce is very important. Okay, So the man is seducing the girl she gives in. In prostitution, that's not the way it works. The girl seduces the man. Um, in rape, there's no seduction at all. You, don't, you, you skip the seduction. You just, you just, you just take it. Okay? And so what we have here is pretty clearly a case of consensual sexual activity. The, the female was persuaded to engage in sexual activity with this man. And she's listed here as a virgin. It also says specifically here uh, that, um, that the virgin is not betrothed to another man. Now, it might be tempting at this point to say, okay, well, this, this gives you sort of a, you know, a window here. If you're, if you're just seeing a girl, you shouldn't have sexual intercourse with her. But if you're engaged, then it's okay. But actually, it's actually the opposite, right? Okay. Uh, if, in fact, this girl is betrothed to a, another person and she engages in sexual activity with another man, this is actually tantamount to adultery, and she is actually put to death for it. So, so it's not as though he's saying, oh, it's okay if you're engaged. No, if you're engaged, actually the, the stakes are even higher. Okay, so we have here a case of premarital sex that is not rape, not prostitution, and not adultery, because they're not engaged. They're, she's, she's not betrothed. She's not married. Okay? And so it makes it pretty clear here that the seduction and the intercourse here are not a, an alternative path to marriage, but a criminal act, which is why there is punishment. Punishment implies guilt. Okay? If, if in fact... The, the, the man is being punished for what he did. It is because he necessarily has done something wrong. Okay, so uh, the point here is it's, it's not just an alternative way to, 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 to arrive at the married state. It is, it is a bad way uh, to arrive at the married state, and it is wrong to do it this way. Okay, questions on this one, this passage? Let's jump to the next one here, Deuteronomy 22. This one's a little bit, little bit different here, but I think the case can still be made. If a man takes a wife and accuses her of not being a virgin, so he, he gets married, he has some suspicions, he doesn't think she's a virgin, and the, 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 uh, if, if the charge is true, and no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found. We can go into details there, but I'd rather not. Right. She shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. Okay, so, so here's a person, here's a woman who had premarital sex. Her brand new husband discovers this, and she receives the death penalty. Why? Because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge out this evil among you. It's a little bit longer, a little bit more complex. So here a woman engaged in premarital sex with another man, but then keeps it a secret from the man that she eventually becomes engaged to it. So there's no doubt here that premarital sex has occurred. 
she had sex with another man before she got engaged and married to this, to this, uh, this wholesome fellow. Okay. It says here that she committed this offense while in her father's house, so while under her father's authority, so it's before she gets married. What's less clear here in, the, in this passage is why she gets executed. You know, the, the other passage, it was something of a slap on the, on the wrist, okay? You've got to pay the price, and you've got to get married, but you, you patch things up and you move forward. You fix the problem. But here, she gets killed. So what's different? What's different about this situation? Well, for some, um, the, the crime is deception. She married this fellow on the false pretense that she was a virgin. She did something that was outrageous. So it's a complex here of fraud, theft, disdain of her father, humiliating him, and now humiliating her husband. So she's completely ruptured Israelite society by doing this, committing a breach of the laws of the people. Okay? Probably what we have here instead, though, is that she effectively commits adultery antecedently, if I can put it that way, before the fact. So the outrageous crime was not so much that she had premarital sex, but that she hid it and actually then committed adultery prior to the fact by marrying another man without telling him. Okay, and so uh, this is uh, so the, the so fornication is used. It's not a, it wasn't adultery first. It was it was a uh, suggests here that it was an intercourse before betrothal, before engagement. But uh, it is wrong, and since she concealed it, she eventually that that crime actually you know, graduates to adultery, and for this reason, she is guilty of a capital crime and so is put to death for it. If she had simply owned up to it and married the first guy, it would have been the slap on the wrist situation. But the fact that she didn't, and she concealed it, she actually blew up uh, the, uh, the, the, the society, the family, dad, her new husband, and it was, and it was, it was disastrous uh, for uh, the perpetuation of a godly and holy seed. Okay. Questions on either of these? Yes. Um, do you, would you um, be comfortable connecting uh, the consequences? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> the reason for treating the second situation so severely to kind of the ongoing way God refers to adultery as illustrative between his relationship. Yes. Yes, and, and, and that, that's another argument that can be raised. The relationship of God and his people, the relationship of Christ and his church, I think uh, ultimately uh, give us good reason uh, to refrain from premarital sex. Yeah. But, but again, that, it becomes a little bit abstract. So if you're looking for chapter and verse, it's, 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 it's a little hard to, to, to make, connect all the dots. But I think the dots are there. So let's get into 1 Corinthians 7, since that's where we're supposed to end up here. 1 Corinthians 7, and this is probably our premier passage in the New Testament on, uh, on this issue here. Um, and so there's not a comprehensive statement on premarital sex, but I think Paul does indirectly speak to the issue. It's an implication that is necessary from what we read. I want to start here with verse 1, because verse 1 is, is a particularly difficult passage uh, to... to uh, have, you, have you gone through verse 1 yet in this class? Have you? Yeah, no, no, maybe. No, okay. okay, so the, the, the very first verse is a very difficult one, depending on what translation you have. It's going to read extremely differently from what I read you. Uh, so we'll, 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 more on that. 
So it says here in the NIV, and I've got the old NIV, so it's maybe even different from your new NIV. Now for the matters that you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry, is the old NIV. Um, King James, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And what does the new NIV say? It is good for a man... Anybody got that in front of you? Yeah, so, so, it's, yeah, so it's, it's a good for a man not to have sexual relationships. So is it touch, marry, or have sexual relationships? Those are very different ideas, right? Okay. And so much hinges here on this. So you've got three options. Uh, we can sort of throw them, throw them out here. One is, you know, yeah, if you're dating and there's a man and a woman, they're dating together, don't even touch her. I mean, six. This is you know. This is why we have the six-inch rule, right? Uh, from from back in the uh, back in the days when you were at Bible college, um, and oftentimes this was your proof text, right? Okay, don't touch her. So just keep at least six inches away from her. Don't even touch her. Okay. So it's a very popular understanding among those who craft purity codes here, uh, but probably not the correct understanding. Second one here in the old NIV is don't marry. Uh, problem is that's not what the word means at all. It never means don't marry. Um, there are some verses later on in this chapter that talk about the propriety of marrying or not marrying, uh, but that's not what this, what this word means. Uh, the word, the, the, the phrase here that's used, touching a woman, is, is one, it's, it's talking about ordinary sexual intercourse. It's non-censorious, it's not rape, um, um, but it, it and, and so that, so that, that is, so these are the options. Don't touch, don't marry, or practice abstinence, okay? Second question that we have to ask is, who's actually speaking here? Is this Paul saying this? You should practice abstinence, or... As the NIV says, now about the matters that you wrote about when you said it's a good thing for men not to touch women, okay, or not to have sexual relationships uh, with their wives or their girlfriends, uh, either, either one, okay? And it looks like it's the latter, okay? This is, this is what the... Uh, this is what the Corinthians were saying, and Paul is answering what the Corinthians are saying. So it, 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 is, it doesn't carry the strength of this is, this is right and wrong, but rather this is what the Corinthians said, and Paul is now answering it. Okay, So the Corinthians were saying, we think it's super spiritual for us, to, and, and, and you know, it's sort of this platonic Gnostic idea, we want to rise above... The, the, these, these fleshly impulses and, and the material impulses. And if we're really spiritual, we don't have to do that anymore. We, we sort of escape that. And Paul's saying, no, that's, act, that's actually not, not right. Okay? In fact, as you work your way through this, this passage, he is insistent that if you're married, you ought to engage in sexual relationships routinely. He does make a, he makes an aside that says, now that, you know, perhaps occasionally uh, for, for, for spiritual purposes, uh, you might, there, there might be a, a window where you don't. But ordinarily, this is, this is normal. This is part of what it is, uh, what, what you're supposed to do. Now, okay, so the question here is whether celibacy should be done. Okay, so he speaks here that, Teach, let me summarize the chapter. He teaches that married believers must remain sexually active with their spouses. Secondly, they must remain married even if their spouses are unbelievers. And that un unmarried believers in this particular case, this particular passage, should default to remaining single because of the present crisis. Okay, unless, unless the drive for sexual fulfillment becomes overwhelming. We're going to see that as we work our way through these two key passages here. So 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9. To the, married, to the unmarried and to the widows, probably we should probably be thinking not so much unmarried as in 
never having been married, but more demarried, they've, they've lost their spouses. Either their spouse has died, or it, apparently in this, in this uh, particular context, there were actually people who were losing their wives because they're walking away when they become believers. So here's, here's a person who's lost their spouse, either through death or abandonment. Okay? And uh, so, so, so that's the issue. So to the unmarried, the demarried, and to the widows. It is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they can't control themselves, they need to marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so he suggests here that if you are a widow or have been demarried, it's probably best to stay unmarried as I am. And, and we recognize that Paul uh, had been married. We don't know the circumstances of the loss of his wife. and It's never clear in the scriptures. But in order to be part of the Sanhedrin, he had to be married. So he was part of the Sanhedrin. He had been married. He lost his wife. Whether she died, whether she abandoned him when he had his Damascus Road experience, we don't know. But at some point, he loses his wife. So he, he, is, he is without a wife. He is eligible to remarry. But he suggests here, and it may be that we should connect this to verse 26 where he said, because of the present crisis, uh, that, uh, that he should remain in this state, this unmarried state. But he, gives this, but he gives this caveat here. Unless they can't control themselves. Okay, so, you know, you've, you've lost your wife, you've lost your husband, but you just have a very strong sex drive here, and you're and you're and you're you're constantly burning with passion. Paul says, in that case, get married. Okay, so you have two options, right? Okay, you can either stay unmarried and control yourself, or if you can't control yourself, then you need to get married. Okay, there is no other alternative. Well, you can just you know, just shack up with somebody, and it'll be fine. No. Uh, if, if, if you're not married, you, you, you're, you're consigned to burning with passion, because, because you cannot fulfill that passion unless you are married. Okay? So they either remain celibate and burn with sexual desire, or else they must marry as the only morally acceptable remedy to sexual burning. There's no other alternative. Same thing is said here in verse 36 as well. In this case, though, it's not people who are demarried or widows, but actually people who are virgins. So if anyone, verse 36, is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin that he is engaged to. So here's young, young folks. They're, they're, vir they're virgins. They're engaged and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, then he ought to do it. He's not sinning. They should get married. Okay, again, this uh, is, is, is talking about Christians in the premarital state, young men, young women who are virgins, who have never had sexual relationships. He says, he says throughout this chapter, the default here, because of the present crisis, is to stay the way that you are. Don't make any massive life changes right now uh, because of the present crisis. Okay, and so he says, just remain. That's the most. That's the most obvious thing. Um, he anticipates, though, that a great many of these virgins would marry after the present crisis. It was just sort of a sort of a, a hold, stay on marriages for the for the present time during the present crisis. But he also opens up the possibility that individuals who are moving towards marriage will need to get married. They, they must get married, even during the present crisis. He makes it clear here that he is, is not saying that the unmarried state is better than the married state. He's, he's not imposing tiers of morality. It's it's, it's good to remain single, but better to get married or vice versa. That's not what he's doing here. He's just saying this is a temporary utility for the present time. So what emerges, and significantly for our thesis, 
is that there's only two options for the unmarried man and his virgin. He can either marry or remain celibate. So if he finds himself with his girl, it says his virgin, that's been something of a, of a, of a, of a hiccup here because if, if they're not married, is it, is it his girl at this point? And I think probably we should probably think in terms of his fiancée or even his steady, right? This is, this is someone he's, he's locked on to. He wants to marry this person. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a singular suitor here. And so uh, he is finding himself not acting honorably towards his girl, his girlfriend, his steady, his fiance. And, you know, he's just getting a little bit too handsy. They're, they're, just, they're just pushing things a little bit too far. And they recognize that if we keep doing this, something bad is going to happen. If you're in that situation, you've got two options. You, you go take a cold shower and get a grip, get a control on yourself. Or you marry. There's no third option in the middle that says, well, you can just you can relieve some of this desire by just shacking up with her one night or a couple nights and you know take take proper birth control and it'll be okay. No, no, no. That's not one of the options. The only option that we have here is get a control, get control of yourself and and continue as you are, or get married. Those are the only two options. And so we find here that uh, this is, uh, so if he becomes overly passionate, marriage needs to happen. Um, so again, same situation as previously. Um, you, the, I guess you could say there's a third option of perpetually burning with sexual desire, uh, but Paul seems to think that that's an undesirable state. You want to either get control of your passions or you get married. This idea of burning with passions is, 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 a, is an undesirable situation to be in. Okay? So, how do we conclude all that with all of this? Well, I think we can say clearly that premarital sex is a sin. I think all of these passages make it clear there's punishment that implies guilt in the, uh, in the, in the Mosaic passages. Here it is very clear that it is not an option to shack up with a girl or have a one-night stand with her. You either have to get a control on your passions or you need to marry. Those are the only valid options here. So it is a sin. It is also a pretty serious sin. Okay? Um, sin does come in degrees, right? There are some, some sins that are worse than others, right? The, and oftentimes it is related to consequences. Uh, but we know this is true because when we come to the to the judgment, it's going to be worse for some people in the day of judgment, even than for those who are in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So there, there are some sins that are bad. We find in Romans 1, for instance, that once you give in to initial sins of not being grateful, not being thankful, not honoring God, what happens? You are given over to worse sins, and so you graduate to worse sins. So there's good, there's, so there's, there, all sin is bad, all, all sin is damning, but some sins are worse than others, and this is one that is a particularly, it, it, is, it is in the more advanced category, because it is destructive of the family unit, it is destructive of civil society. Another point here I want to make, and I don't think it's in your, in your handout there, is that this is a more likely sin for us to encounter on a day-to-day -day basis in our churches. I, I know there are other sins, unnatural sins, homosexuality, transgenderism, that, is, that are sort of getting, the, getting all the attention right now. The fact is, this sin, premarital sex, or extramarital sex, as you, if you may, is a much more common, and always will be, a much more common sin within our churches and even within society. It's, it's a more natural sin. It's more normal, if I can put it that way. That's what God says in Romans 1, right? Um, and so we need to really be aware of and able to answer this question because it's going to be more likely to come up with your kids than 
some of the excesses that are ongoing in society today. So I think it's, it's very important. And then third, uh, the last point that I make there is that the case against premarital or extramarital sex is not just a matter of abstract theological deduction. I mean, that's part of it. But we actually have plain biblical support that is available to all who have the eyes of faith to see it. Okay? So um, I know it's sort of a squeamish topic. I don't like to talk about this. I mean, I, 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 feel, this, I feel the same weight of pressure. Uh, even just saying the word sex at church just some, somehow seems wrong, right? At the same time, it's an issue that we need to deal with. And uh, hopefully this actually gives us some, some ammunition uh, in, our, in, our, in our counseling and even in our own conduct uh, as, we, as we function here within the church. Any, any questions about any of this here? Yeah, Paul. Oh, which one? Oh, yes, because because it says, uh, um, yes, that that is an alternate. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's it's actually in the book if you want to read it. <laughs> but but yeah, because it says it's his virgin. Some have said, well, it can't be the it can't be the suitor, because it's not his virgin yet. If she's a virgin and she's still in her dad's house, it's not his girl. And so the the crime, if I can put it that way, is dad not being willing to give away his daughter. Um, but I don't think that really flows naturally from you know, a, a plain reading of what, what's going on there. The, the his version, the his almost surely has to do with, with the young man who is, who, is, who is wooing the girl. But yeah, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a good observation. Other thoughts? Okay. Well, we got out a little bit early. Don't tell Bill. <laughs> Hold him to a higher standard here. But uh, thanks, for, thanks for stopping in. <laughs>